back to our reentry summit, working together to support San Franciscans after incarceration. And I'd like to send out a special thanks to the San Francisco Safe Communities Reentry Council and all the hardworking staff and volunteers who are helping out behind the scenes pulling today's summit together. I'm Joanne Marr, and I'll be moderating our next panel discussion at home and in the community, decreasing the disproportionate impacts of violence and incarceration. We'll be discussing strategies for discouraging ex-offenders from recidivating and for providing assistance for children coming from incarcerated families. And we'll also talk about how to protect families and communities from the impacts of violence and incarceration. Let me introduce our next group of distinguished panelists. Therese Rodriguez and Kyle Sporleader are both with the organization Project What? with Community Works. Corinne Pope is a parent client with Children of Incarcerated Parents, which is run by the Office of the Public Defender. Rudy Aguilar is the program coordinator with the Parolee Services Network under the San Francisco Department of Public Health. Ronald Sanders is a community health educator with the Transitions Clinic. Kenneth Rogers is counselor with the Senior Ex-Offender Program. Cedric Akbar is executive director with Positive Directions Equals Change and the No Violence Alliance. Abdul Aziz is an ex-offender and he's gone through the No Violence Alliance program. And George Durand is program coordinator with the Communities Program of the San Francisco Sheriff's Department and he's also associated with NOVA, No Violence Alliance. Uh, we're going to begin this session by talking about children who come from incarcerated families and the challenges of growing up with uh, a parent in prison. And Kyle Sporleader and Therese Rodriguez, you both grew up with uh, parents in prison and uh, you belong to the organization Project What with Community Works. Why don't we begin by having you tell us what is Project What? Project What is, um, project what is a project. No. Not yet. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Does it work? We're working on it. <laughs> I think your mic is oh, working. Yeah, like okay. So my mic is working. Um, Project What is an organization. Um, it's made up of youth and children who have, um, have or have had parents who are incarcerated. And we do presentations a lot of times to teachers and social workers to talk about the impacts of having a parent incarcerated to one of our goals is to change policies, create awareness, and um, tell our stories as well. Okay, well, growing up uh, without one or both parents is always difficult, but uh, it's especially difficult for children when a parent is incarcerated uh, because uh, state prisons are in remote locations of the state and uh, are usually hundreds of miles away from uh, families. So, uh, Kyle, Therese, I'd like to have each of you talk about uh, your personal stories uh, growing up with a parent in prison. Why don't we start with you, Therese? So I'm going to share with everyone part of a story, um, part of my story. I can recall vividly, 
nights when my dad, brother, and I were home watching movies, and my dad would say those little words that started my heart racing with fear. I'm going to the store. I'll be right back. I knew from experience that once he left, chances were he wouldn't come back. I would cry and cry and beg him, Daddy, don't go. If you really love me, you won't leave. You don't have to go. But he always left. Then would come that dreaded phone call saying how sorry he was that he wouldn't be around for a while. My dad had an addiction to crack and cocaine that was stronger than me and my family. He was in and out of jail and prison for all my childhood and up until I was around 16 years old, which at that point he made his home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he last did time at. When I was a little girl and he would disappear, my mom would tell me he was working in the fields, I think she would say, and he couldn't come home. The thought that lingered in my mind was why didn't he know and tell us ahead of time if he'd be a while working. It was my cousin or friend of the family who eventually told me, you know, your dad's not really working right. They're just lying to you. He's really in jail. I listened more closely to phone call conversations my mom was having with my dad and other people, and I figured it out for myself. For a while, I still played along because I didn't know how to bring it up, but it eventually came out in the open. That's when my family started to really talk bad about my dad. My grandparents, uncles, and aunts on my mom's side would say, he's not your, he's not your dad. He's not helping you. He's not doing anything for you. He doesn't help your mom. Look where he's at. He's more like your dad, they would say, referring to my grandpa and uncle. My brother and I were raised not to talk back to our elders, but everything they said to me or anyone else about my dad got me angry and built resentment towards them. My dad was my everything, my shining star. I was the firstborn, daddy's little girl. No matter how much he hurt me and my family, he was still my dad, and I didn't like when anyone would say otherwise. In my head, I defended my father. My brother and I never visited my dad when he was locked up. I'm not sure if it was my mom's or dad's idea for us not to go, but we never questioned why we didn't visit him. I guess I always assumed he was just far away. I remember feeling stressed out because it was very hard to write him. He would send us birthday cards, letters, and drawings of cartoons. I loved receiving these drawings. I knew he was an artist, and I felt proud of that. On the other hand, I never really sent him anything. On the phone, he'd ask if we'd written or sent him anything, and I would lie and say that I would. I'd say something like it got lost in the mail. When, we, when he would come back home from being locked up, he'd be in a good mood at first, but the anxiety would build up in me. I knew that we'd get whipped later and only a matter of time for all those lies we had told him. I'm sure it really hurt that we never wrote him a letter or sent him anything, but there was nothing I had to say to him. Each time my dad went away, it grew more and more painful for me to be without my dad, and each time apart grew longer. When I was in the fourth grade, my parents finally got divorced. My dad was sent to Milwaukee, and when he was released for the final time, he decided to stay out there, believing that he needed to get away from his old lifestyle and bad habits in the city. I came back, he came back to visit us and apologized for everything he did and asked for our forgiveness. At the time, I really couldn't respond and express how I felt. I just hugged him as he cried and told him that it was okay. His other intention in coming down was to see if we wanted to move up to Milwaukee with him. But none of us was ready to change our lives around to fit his new lifestyle. We visited him before making our final decision to stay in San Francisco, where we really felt was our home. I was hurt in the end. He chose to live out there without us. I guess I had always assumed that he would eventually come back and make up for lost time. Then I figured it wouldn't make that big of a difference since I was used to him not being around anyways. 
He's now married and is taking care of my niece, my stepmom's daughter, while my sister is in prison. I have my own family now, a husband and a beautiful baby boy. My experiences growing up motivate me to try very hard with my marriage. I put a lot into it and make sure that he is as well. I would never want to put my son through such horrible experiences as an absent father, divorce, or watching his parents date other people. I want to be there physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually for my son so that he has what I missed out on. I want to give my son the love, consistency, stability, and trust so that he can grow up knowing that he is loved. But I also want him to be independent as I learned to be. These are some of the reasons why I chose to become a social worker. I'm now in the last year of the master's program at State. A lot of people who need services. <laughs> a lot of the people who do need services are from low-income neighborhoods and struggling family. These experiences have helped me to grow into a very strong and independent person. My desire and passion is to help people, especially children, youth, and families who have many hardships and barriers in their life. Sometimes people go to college just to focus on making money, getting a better job, and moving out of their neighborhood. Not me. I'm working and educating myself so that I can use my skills to help advocate for people, change policies, and organize. You're next. Why don't you share your personal story with us about growing up with a parent in prison? All right. I'm going to share my story now. During his life, a boy expects to receive love, happiness, and security from his parents. He expects his parents to be dependable and to provide him with the aid and guidance necessary to thrive. In my life, these expectations were never met. My father met and married my mom when he was 20 and she was 23. He was a non-graduate of high school, unemployed, and without his own family to support him. When he met my mom, I think he saw his anchor, a person that helped him hold his life together. They stayed happily married for about a year and a half. Then he began to heavily drink and exhibit bipolar tendencies, jolly one minute and violent the next. One night, after coming home from a bar, he pulled my mom out of bed and started screaming at her, blaming her, him, her for all of his problems. My mother tried to calm him, but he was beyond reason. He grabbed her by the hair and threw her down the stairs. She was seven months pregnant with me at the time. The neighbors called the police, and upon their arrival, my mother was put into an ambulance, and my father was arrested. This event began my family's long and painful journey of domestic violence. By the time I was 11, my father had been arrested many more times. He and my mother argued regularly, sometimes with dispute ending in violence. Though he had stopped drinking, he was abusing drugs and often inviting his addict friends to stay with us. I didn't understand why my family had to be so unhappy. I wanted to talk so to someone about how I felt, but I couldn't think of whom. I thought about talking to my friends, but I felt embarrassed. I also thought about telling my church's pastor, but I was scared that something horrible would happen. I had seen on TV what happened in dysfunctional families. They'd be split up. I didn't want to leave my mom or my little sister and brother, so I decided to talk to my favorite relatives, my uncle and aunt. I called my aunt, and the following day, she and my uncle came to pick me up, telling my mom that we were just taking me to the movies. After we left the house, I told them everything. I told them about my parents' continuous arguments. I told them about how scared my siblings and I were. They listened to me silently, without expression. 
Then my uncle spoke. He told me not to worry about anything, that he would handle it. I was so immensely relieved. Finally, someone was going to help me. Oh, was I wrong. The next day, my mom confronted me. She smacked me across the face and started yelling at me. She was furious that I thought I could just spread our family's business and do so without telling her. When my dad heard what she was yelling about, he beat me. I'll never forget that night. I cried myself to sleep, cupping my wet, bruised face. No one was going to help me. My mom had convinced my aunt that there was nothing wrong. She had lied out of shame, and her lies had condemned me. I was a prisoner of my own family. On the morning of my eighth grade graduation, I woke up at dawn to get ready. My mom helped my sister Lindsay and my brother Shane to get dressed. My mom was trying to get ready too, but my father impeded her progress. He was insisted he needed money to fix the car, though in actuality he wanted to buy drugs. By this time, he was using cocaine, speed, and heroin. As they fought, I simply sat in a chair with my brother and sister, watching them. The normalcy with which we treated my parents' fighting now appalls me. My father attempted to wrench my mother's money out of her hands, but she pulled away from him and ran outside to the car. I followed her and so did my siblings, but my father grabbed them as they neared the door. He said that they weren't going and that the only person that was going to be present at my graduation was my bitch mom. I hated him for doing that to me. My mom and I got into the car and drove to my school. She was crying, but for some reason I wasn't. When we got there, I ran inside the church where the ceremony would be held. I didn't turn back to see if my mom followed. Twenty minutes later, as my classmates and I were lining up for graduation to begin, I heard a scream. My mother screamed. I ran outside along with many other people, and on the steps of the church stood my parents arguing. Apparently, my father decided to come to my graduation, but only with the intention of getting money from my mother. When she refused to relent, he took the camcorder from her. Maybe that he thought he'd get some money out of it. But he was my dad, and that was the camcorder that was supposed to record my graduation. Luckily, when he left, he forgot Lindsay and Shane, so they were able to stay. After the ceremony, many people congratulated me for my awards. A large group of teachers, friends, and families, including my own, headed to a restaurant to celebrate. When we got there, I excused myself from the group. I needed a moment alone. My mom had apologized to me, but I was so angry about my father, so sick of the hell that my family was being exposed to daily. I sat down and cried. During the next year, my father continued to physically abuse my, my mother and me, as well as psychologically assault my brother and sister. Finally, there came a moment when I was so fed up that I fought back. My father had been trying to force my mom to give him money, and they ended up struggling. Lindsay and Shane were watching and crying. I tackled my father. I managed to get him off my mom momentarily, but after hitting him a few times, he turned back to her. I ran to the phone and threatened to call the police. My parents shouted for me to stop, both of them. I never knew why my mom had always protected my father all those times the police had come for him, but now I know. She protected him out of love. Misplaced love, but still love. Afterward, my mom managed to calm down my dad, and then she told me to pack my stuff. She said that if I stayed there, my father would hurt me, and that she couldn't do anything about it. She drove me to my friend Daryl's house, gave me $100, and drove back home, to the home that was no longer mine. I stood there silently with Daryl's arm across my shoulders, and I cried. For over a year and a half, I lived with friends, first with Daryl and his father, then with two brothers, Michael and Anthony, and their dad. My gratitude toward these friends and the families is, is, is immeasurable, but having no steady family support of my own created great stress. My mother tried to drop off some money or food monthly, but it wasn't nearly enough. Then she stopped visiting me so often. 
Eventually, I got back in contact with my mom, and she started helping me out again. She even brought my brother and sister to see me. I missed them so much, but my joy at seeing them dissipated when they told me about the torment my father was causing them. I felt like I had abandoned them. I begged my mother to let me come back home, but she wouldn't let me. Eventually, I went to my house anyway. I expected it to be a short visit, but it ended up changing my life. When, my, when I arrived, my parents were fighting, so I instinctively called the police. When they got there, they took my father away. Apparently, there had been an active court order for him to stay away from my mom, my siblings, and me. He had violated a restraining order that I hadn't even known existed. My mixed feelings tortured me. When I was younger, my father had told me about how horrible prison was, and I had just sent him there for at least a year. My heart burst with guilt as well as relief. During his life, a boy expects many things. When a boy grows to be a young man, and after he has endured struggle, pain, and disappointment, he realizes that his expectations were naive. But now that young man has hopes and dreams. He is no longer naive. He knows that those hopes and dreams might not necessarily come true. The future is still uncertain, but all he can do is hope for the best. Thank you, Kyle and Therese. I'd like to bring uh, Corinne Pope into this discussion. She's a client with Children of Incarcerated Parents. Uh, Corinne, why don't you tell us about uh, this organization and uh, what support services you've received as a parent client? <clears throat> Hi, my name is Corinne Pope. Um, I was incarcerated last year um, for a couple of months. Um, I have a daughter, she's two, and at the time, she was a little younger than that. Um, she wasn't very knowledgeable of what was going on in my life, why I wasn't present. Um, during the time of my incarceration, I met with Yolanda, who is um, a worker in the program, and her job was to assist me with getting visits and inmate services with children, um, getting contact visits where I could interact with my child, and, you know, just be there as much as possible during my incarceration. Um, I actually refused those services while I was in jail because for me at the time it seemed harder to, you know, have my daughter come in and have that contact visit, and then she would have to leave. And I just couldn't really accept her leaving or accept me still being there without her. So I know for me that was really hard for her. It probably was really even more hard. Um, after my incarceration, once I was released, um, the, the services I received were still the same. Um, everyone that I had interacted with while, during my incarceration was still there for me. I'm totally grateful for that today. That's why I'm here today, to try to give back to someone else, because the services that I received definitely helped me. I know. Bear with me. It was just really hard. It's just real hard trying to do the right thing, you know. I'm sorry. It's just, you know, it's very easy to do nothing or to be nobody, you know, to be overlooked. And it's really, really hard. And it's really not even stressed in the community where I was raised and brought up. It's not vital that you be successful, that you get an education, and that you be the best that you can be for not just your children, but for yourself. 
and it took me a lot of bad experiences going through jail. Last year, 2006, was a very trying year for me. I was shot. I went to jail. I went through custody battles. I was relocated, a lot of things. So it's really hard to stand strong after those things happen to you. And to have support from people like Yolanda, your family, your friends, is so important. It's very important. I'm, I, can, I can only speak from the standpoint in which I'm in. Looking from the outside in, people say I'm a bad person. I've done this, I've done that. It's like that's my reputation, which can be changed overnight. My character, I am a very strong person. I am an educated person, thanks to my grandma, thankfully. The family I was raised in, they're, you know, we're prone to drugs and violence and not going to school, not doing anything. I made a transition from that family to my father's side of the family where I was exposed to a lot of other resources. And luckily for me, those resources helped me to understand, yes, I went through something. Yes, I did go to jail. Yes, I did get shot. Yes, I did drop out of high school, but I decided to go back. Yes, I did do a lot of things. And I'll continue to probably make mistakes and continue to do some things. But I know that, like when I was younger, and when all of us was younger, I'm sure your mother said, you know better. And I know better. And I want better, and I want more, and that's why I'm here today. Thank you, Corinne. Um, I have uh, a few questions to ask for the three of you. Um, and I want to have you talk about uh, the importance of having mentors in your life um, we heard a very moving keynote addressed by Luis Rodriguez about the importance of having mentors, uh, adult figures to provide guidance and assistance uh, when you're young. And it sounds like from the three of your stories, um, you didn't have those kind of mentor figures in your lives. Do you think that would have, that, that would have been important for you? Um, for me, I know that it would have been very important. Um, of course, I can't say how it would have changed my life, um, but um, I see the way my niece is with not having a mom or a dad and being raised by her grandparents. And um, it's just always good to have someone positive in your life to inspire change in you, to inspire healthy growth. Um, no, I did not necessarily have any mentors, but I do feel that I had some measure of support. Otherwise, I don't know what state I'd been in, be in right now. Um, I think that it doesn't really matter who the person is, just someone willing to be genuine and support a person in this kind of predicament. I mean, all human beings should have that natural empathy and should should feel sorry for other people and want to help them get out of situations like this. So I got support from my friends from people I didn't even know that just asked me my story and just letting me know that someone cared really helped me. Um, again, support is very vital. It is very, very vital. If anyone has anyone in a trying situation, you want to be as supportive as possible. I know for me growing up, I did not have parents that were incarcerated. However, I had parents that were addicted to drugs and neglect is neglect.
you know, they weren't there. They were there, but they were gone. My, I could literally look out my window and see my mom across the street doing drugs. And we were at home in the dark. So our pg money went on whatever she was smoking. Again, I had my sisters and my brothers there taking care of me and pushing me along and saying it's going to be okay. Um, for now, now it's just with me right now is inner support. It's just everything that's coming from me and whatever support and motivation I'm getting. Right now I'm truly trying to get it from myself because I know that I have to do something. Regardless if you agree or regardless if I get that support, I have to do something for myself. But to have someone there for you, pushing you, positive reinforcement. Like right now, my daughter's two, and she just started school a couple of weeks ago. And the other day, she used the potty for the first time. And it was like, it was just the potty, but it was, whoo, <laughs> you go, girl. <laughs> you know? And, it's, and for her, it was, it was a big deal, you know? And to really just stress that and to congratulate people and to say, you can do it or keep going, I know it's hard, or whatever you can do, it definitely helps, truly. Corinne, you got assistance from uh, Children of Incarcerated Parents that's run by the Office of the Public Defender. Mm -hmm. um, does this organization provide mentors or, or, or role models? Absolutely. Everyone there is a mentor and a role model. Anyone that's been through anything could be a mentor and a role model. I mean, it's just it's where you go to get this information, to get these resources. Just someone telling me, you know, hey, Cece, you're looking good today. You can do it. For me, everything, it seems like I'm just looking in a whole new light. Everything is a mentor and positive reinforcement for me. But definitely at the CIP program, they're definitely there to help you. And I know that because I'm no longer in jail, and they're still helping me. So they're definitely there to help if anyone needs the support. And Teresa and Kyle, you belong to Project What? Do they provide uh, mentors or uh, um, uh, role models to help children? Um, well, that particular program is made up of us. So we're the ones that go out and um, we provide support amongst each other. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, I guess uh, the next question is for uh, Kyle and Therese. Um, the way the prison system is set up, it's almost impossible for children to see their parents on any kind of regular basis because prisons are so far away. They're in remote parts of the state, uh, hundreds of miles away. Do you have any ideas for strengthening ties, for maintaining healthy relationships with uh, parents who are incarcerated? Well, I believe that it was kind of difficult for my personal experience because of my situation with my father. I didn't necessarily want to visit him, but I, I did visit him sometimes. And I think that it doesn't really matter about how many miles away it is. Just having a parent not in your home is really hurtful. I mean, to know that they're behind the bars, that they're somewhere else, and you can't see them how you'd like to see them. You can see them across from the glass. You can see them across from the table without touching. They're not in your life anymore. I think that I mean, keeping the connection between the parent and child, I think that if my father, I don't know, it's a bit off topic, but if my father had had certain rehabilitative services, if he had someone help him, then he wouldn't have hurt me, and we could have had a closer relationship. And of course I, wouldn't have wanted to, I would have wanted to visit him, but if he had had that, I wouldn't have to visit him because he'd be right there at home with me. 
um, going along the whole rehabilitation part, um, I never seen my dad either throughout his whole time. Um, but I felt like it was just kind of weird when I was young, the fact that he'd always get locked up for the same thing over and over again. So, I mean, obviously it didn't help him. What eventually helped him was when he got out the last time going to church. But um, just having some sort of guide for him personally to help with his addictions would have helped the family. And when you help, yeah, it, it is like um, incarceration is an intergenerational cycle that occurs and in order to stop that, you have to start with the family. You have to help the father with whatever addiction he has and work with the kids as well because you can help the dad. He can come back into the family. But if the kids are still broken up, still torn, still hurting from what had occurred, then if there's no healing with, that, with the children, then it's just going to keep going. Yeah, that's true. Okay, Kyle, Therese, Corinne, I'd like to thank you all for sharing your stories with us. They were very moving. I'd like to move uh, our discussion to uh, focus on people who are coming out of prison and their efforts to uh, reintegrate. As we all know, California has one of the highest recidivism rates in the country. Over 70% of ex-offenders commit new crimes and return to prison. Reentry programs that provide drug treatment and counseling, uh, housing, job referrals, educational and job training opportunities, these can all be critical in turning ex-offenders' lives around and uh, turning them away from a life of crime. And in this is part of our panel discussion. We're going to talk about substance abuse and other health issues. And I'm going to uh, address my next set of questions to three of our panelists who work with ex-offenders on health-related issues. Rudy Aguilar is with the Department of Public Health. Ronald Sanders is with the Transitions Clinic. And uh, Kenneth Rogers is with the Senior Ex-Offender Program. Uh, my first question to all of you, what, what kinds of um, health and substance abuse problems do you see most often among ex-offenders who uh, are coming out of prison and come to your clinics and programs uh, asking for help? The, uh, the programs that we operate in the city are yeah. the programs that we operate in the city are basically residential and outpatient treatment programs. So we uh, we get folks that uh, go in and do uh, do time for substance abuse uh, kinds of offenses. Uh, most of them are nonviolent uh, folks, and initially it's a uh, it's a volunteer program and program uh, treatment is volunteer. When they come out of the institution, they go in. So we provide a variety of a program. For instance, we have a uh, a, a residential treatment program that uh, focuses uh, uh, parolees that have some kind of trade or some kind of. Uh, of employment situation that's almost already waiting for them. In other words, they don't have to stay a minimum of 30 to 45 days in residential treatment before they can go out and look for employment. So this is a unique program actually to here in the in the Bay that we have in San Francisco. 
And then we have, we have a residential program that provides a variety of different individual group, but focuses on trying to get the individual acclimated back into the community. And this work is done with programs that are funded through the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. I must say that, you know, in my view, substance abuse is a health issue. And so anything that's related to that, to me, is in the realm of health. One of the things that has been striking in hearing the first panel was that the Parolee Services Network, which was initially the Bay Area Services Network, which was planned back about 15 years ago, that, you know, we're still dealing with the same amount of funding. So that's got to tell you something. We're talking about reentry now 15 years later, and they're not talking about expanding community treatment. I, in the 20 plus years that I've worked in the area of community treatment at the administrative level, county level, have found that those are probably your most effective programs for ex-offenders. When you allow them to come back into the community and acclimate themselves back into the community and get drug treatment, that is the best way to keep them out of the system. And those are the kinds of programs that we currently have here in San Francisco that are funded through the Department of Corrections. It was kind of interesting with the first panel that the Department of Corrections folks didn't even mention those particular programs. Okay. Ronald Sanders, what kind of health and substance abuse problems are you seeing coming into your clinic? Well, for one, my name is Ron Sanders. I'm a community health worker at a transition clinic. And what we do is we provide free medical care for chronically ill parolees just getting released, women and men. And the problem is we only do it on Fridays from 1 to 5. So, you know, but what we're seeing is a lot of them coming out with hep C, diabetes, asthma. And what we try to do is get them in quick in the first two weeks while they've been released because they're vulnerable after then. And there's a lot of, you know, because a lot of places, you know, you've got to make an appointment or they don't have a primary doctor. And then by then, you know, they've got to use the emergency ward and everything else. And plus, inside our clinic, we have two doctors that have worked inside prisons. So they know how to relate with the patients. And my job is to help them with the other aspects that are not medical, like employment, housing, substance abuse, referrals, and counseling and anything else I can help them with. But the biggest challenge is getting them to make their appointments. You know, and I do the PAC meeting every Wednesday. We sign up. I might sign up 6, 7, 8, and I know they're real sick and they don't show up. And I'm like, you know, and I'm calling, phone, all this and that. But and it has to deal with it. It has to deal with a lot of them have substance abuse problems. You know, so we try to keep on contacting them and contacting them and get them in there, but a lot of times we lose them. But and our clinic has everything inside of it, social worker. We have a lab inside. We have everything right there. And plus, we're in the Bayview community, and we align with the other agencies in the Bayview, like Positive Direction, Providence, and a few other in there, the senior ex-offender, too. And we're trying our best 
to see these, these clients because they got bad medical care inside prison, and, and a lot of times they come out a whole lot worse than they was when they was in prison, you know. So, you know, we're really trying to target the chronic, the chronic, the ones with chronic illness. Kenneth Rogers is a counselor with the uh, Senior Ex-Offender Program. Now, this program, I think, is the first of its kind in California to actually provide specific services for senior ex-offenders? Uh, yes, the Senior Ex-Offenders Program. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Well, my name is Kenny Rogers. I'm with the uh, Baby Hunters Point Senior Center. Uh, I'm the case manager for the Senior Ex-Offenders Program. Um, the program is the first of its kind in the nation. We cater to men uh, 50 and older, women 45 and older. The reason for the age disparity is because uh, older people have a much harder time trying to find housing, jobs, medical care, you name it, when they get out of jail. Uh, and, and we're there to help them in any of those needs that, that, that they may have when they come out of jail. We also go into the jails on uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays. We do a group on Tuesdays called In uh, the Chaos, where we try and encourage not only the seniors but everybody in jail that there's a better way, you know, and uh, this is not the place for them. On Thursdays, uh, we go in and, and try and inspire the whole the, the dorm by doing poetry, bringing in poets to, uh, you know, do poetry and, and have the inmates uh, uh, help, uh, you know, participate by writing their own poems or, or, or raps, whatever they want to do. We're located in the Bayview Hunters Point. We uh, collaborate with quite a few organizations there, Positive Direction, Southeast College, uh, employment agencies such as Terry Anders and Anders Company, uh, and we've been, exist been in existence for the last five years. Uh, my, ex my director, Frank Williams, sits on the, uh, the panel here. Uh, and we've been doing what we're doing for the last five years. But, oh, to answer your question, one of the, one of the uh, medical problems that I see coming to the office is, like you're saying, diabetes and hep C. The vast majority of people coming out of... Uh, either jail or state prison, they have hep C. It's quite a few cases of diabetes, but the majority of them have hep C. Well, we've heard uh, discussion um, from our earlier panel that uh, substance abuse is a serious problem among prisoners. About 70% of all California prisoners need some kind of drug treatment, but while they're in prison, only a small percentage are actually getting uh, treatment. So a lot of ex-offenders who are coming to your clinics and programs are uh, walking in for the first time getting treatment and counseling, maybe in years. Uh, does that situation make your jobs more difficult uh, in terms of getting them to stop using uh, when um, these ex-offenders are not receiving any kind of treatment or rehabilitation while they're in prison? The job, the job is extremely hard in the first place because a lot of people, uh, like they were saying earlier, they don't have the support when they come out. Uh, 
as opposed to when they're in that, they don't have the support. So it's even harder when you come to uh, a strange environment and try to get help, and sometimes you don't, uh, you don't agree with whatever place you might go to seeking counseling. You might disagree with whatever they might think, or they might have the wrong philosophy for you, and you just walk away. Um, but by me being an ex-addict, I can relate and I can understand, you know, some of their feelings. So I tend to try and uh, try and trick them and trick them into, you know, going along with the program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good way of doing it. Um, you know, we, we have found through the years one of the one of the uh, hallmarks that we found early on when we. Uh, implemented the uh, parolee services network was that uh, having case management was very important. Um, and, and something as simple as the youth here we're talking about, just having somebody go in and just acknowledge that you even exist. Uh, initially, back in 1990, when the programs were implemented here in San Francisco, well, they're in the Bay Area, I was in San Mateo County at the time, um, we implemented these programs and we had a case management component to these programs. And uh, the Delancey Foundation uh, or program was the one that was doing our case management work. And uh, working with some of these case managers, just going out and making contact with these parolees was so, so important. I mean, it really made, uh, made the difference between a parolee staying in treatment um, or, or leaving. And some of the reasons why they left were, as was mentioned earlier, you know, their uh, ability to really kind of communicate or um, feel at home with some of the, with some of the program personnel. Um, here in San Francisco, I must say, uh, for the last uh, 14 years that, we, that I've been doing, uh, uh, managing these programs here, we do have many ex-offenders that are involved in our treatment programs. Uh, CJ CJ, who is one of our programs here in the city who's been with us for, gosh, I don't know, 15 years, probably 14 years, um, has hired folks that have come right out of the institution, have gotten into treatment, have wanted to give back, and have become counselors there, have, have gone through the certification program, are certified now, and things like this. Uh, the uh, Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic also has a handful of ex-offenders that uh, came out of the institution, uh, got treatment, wanted to give back, and became counselors and our counselors in those programs. Walden House, the same thing. So we have a variety of different programs. I think it, here in San Francisco, we really are unique in a lot of ways. Where we do, there is an opportunity for many of these ex-offenders uh, to 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 excel if they want to go back and give back in that counseling uh, uh, arena. Uh, the, the only really deficit, to be honest with you, and I have to be really frank because I'm a real proponent of community treatment. I really believe in the number of years that I've been involved. I myself, by the way, am a recovering person, ex-drug addict, uh, heroin addict, uh, have been, had my stint in and out of the institutions. So, I mean, I understand what's going on and I understand how it works. Um, you know, I was talking to, um, well, actually my brother-in-law who just got out of prison not too long ago, um, and I was going to be doing this panel, and I said, you know, I want to say something that hopefully people can understand. I said, you know, and, 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 and I can tell you that uh, in the years that I've been doing this kind of work, I said, you know, there's a couple of things that resonate in terms of need for ex-offenders. I said, one is job training, job placement, or employment. The other is housing. I said, and in San Francisco, we have a unique population. 
most of our uh, substance abusers, in which we have a number of them, you know, come out of the institution. In the African-American community, many of them are paroled out to the street. I mean, literally. You know, you, talk, you heard earlier, uh, you got a $200 gate money, and by the time you pay your bus fare, you know, you probably have enough to have a nice little uh, dinner or something, or maybe get the, you know, <laughs> get something going on for one night, and then it's gone. Then it's gone, and then you have to... You know, you have to report here in San Francisco, if you, you parole out in a week, every Wednesday, you talked about the PAC meetings, um, the, the, every Wednesday, if you were a recent parolee during that week, you got to attend mandatory PAC meeting. That's where they provide you with all these kinds of uh, services or give you some resources for services and, and employment and those kind of things, which is a good thing, which is a good thing. But, you know, many of these guys are, you know, they don't have nowhere to go. I mean, you know, they pretty much burnt all their bridges. And, and the reason why in, my, in the time that I've seen community treatment, community treatment, I feel, is the reentry key. And we heard it with our main speaker, Luis Rodriguez, talking about it. You know, we are the community. And, we, you know, we have sprinkled programs here and there and, you know, that type of thing. We need to have programs all over the place. They're the most cost-effective, uh, pennies on the dollar for what it costs to have uh, our inmates either in a, in a county institution or a state institution. And when I hear reentry, and I heard what, what was being said earlier in the earlier panel, I think of, geez, so they're talking about building little mini prisons in our county system? Uh, I don't know. I'm going out on a limb. And I, may, I may get some calls from even my bosses when I get back to the office. But... I got to be honest with you, the way to deal with reentry and deal with our community and heal our community is to expand community treatment at the community level. You know, the folks that are sitting around the table, you know, that I'm honored to sit with here on the table, many of them can tell you their experience because some of them are ex-offenders. Some of you that are out there can tell you the same thing. We need to expand community treatment. When they're talking about putting, opening up 16,000 beds in California, you know, for reentry, uh, probably 80% of all that money is going to go to hire new uh, correctional officers in these new facilities or hire new staff at the county jail so that they can uh, supervise those beds they're going to buy at the county jail instead of, you know, instead of giving a program a number, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, our CJCJ program, 16 beds. We have a six-bed facility in the avenues in a very nice neighborhood. Everybody's great with that program out there. They don't have an issue with it because, you know what, parolees there do their job. They want to be out. They don't want to go back. You know, and when they're well supervised and, they're, and, and there's people that care, the community cares, hey, they're going to want to stay out. They're not going to go out there and rob you. I mean, you know, we're still kind of living the old Wilson administration fear of, of uh, you know, that, that we're going to get robbed every time we go outside the door. I mean, if I believed that propaganda, I would never be outside. Um, but, I mean, but, I mean, you know, the, the thing about it is that most parolees, most parolees want to stay out. And I think that most of them come out with really good intentions. You know, I was talking to my brother-in-law, and I have a nephew, actually, who's going to be coming out in about 
10 months. He's been in there for 12 years already. And, you know, he's got some really good ideas. You know, he says, you know what, uh, Theo, I'm going to go with my grandma, and you know what, I'm going to go and get a job. This guy's like 25 years old. Um, he went from YA, and then he graduated to the, you know, adult penitentiary because he, he you know, outgrew the YA, <laughs> you know. So anyways, and, and he's thinking, he's saying, you know, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do good. I, I want to get a job. I want to go to school. And I want, and you know, and I was talking to my, to my uh, brother-in-law, and I said, you know, he did 11 years. And I said, you know, you guys come out. I hear these stories all the time. I said, I've been working with folks for a number of years, and I hear these stories all the time. And he says, hey, well, you know what? About 70% of the guys that I was in prison with all have these really good intentions, grandiose ideas. You know what? We're going to make it. We're going to get out, and we're going to make it. We're going to work. We're going to go to school. We're going to support our families. We're going to make it. He says, and you know what? When we come out into the world, into the real world, he says, you know what? Everything is different. It's not the way we thought about it in our mind. And nobody in the institution sits with us and tells us, hey, man, you know what? This is the realities of when you come out. This is the way it really is. You're going to go knock on about 100 doors and maybe two of them will open to give you an interview. You know, they think that they're going to come out and, you know, the first door they knock on, they're going to say, hey, yeah, come on in. You know, here's an application. You can get a job. That's not the way it works. So a lot of these guys get overwhelmed. Before you know it, you know, a month or two, they're right back where they came from. And it's not their fault. We set it up that way. Our system sets it up that way. So it's no wonder that in California we have a 70% uh, recidivism rate. We set it up that way. And what does it cost us as taxpayers? Millions of dollars to get them back in there and keep them housed. I say that if anybody really wants to get involved in reentry here in San Francisco, we can really do it, is write to your congresspeople, write to your senators, talk to the people that make the policies and say, you know what, we need a groundswell of community treatment because that's what's cost effective and that's what works. Kenneth Rogers, do you have something to add? I just wanted to add that uh, incentives play a, a big part of uh, re-entering uh, formerly incarcerated people back into their community. Uh, me, myself, even when I was incarcerated, when I got out, I, I was looking for something. I wanted something, you know. If nothing else but a place to stay or somewhere to go to have lunch. And, and when, when people have a place or a person where they can feel comfortable with that and, you know, get back into the norm of, of living, then they're going to they're gonna continue to go there. This is some of the things that we do at the center uh, for, us, for us trying, like I say, trick them. Uh, we offer them lunch. We offer free lunch. It's, a, it's on a donation uh, basis, but if you don't have any money, you're more than welcome to eat. That, that goes for anybody, and you can imagine how many people show up just for the lunch line. But once we get them there for lunch, we try, I try and entice them to go upstairs and play some pool with me or play some dominoes or whatever, just to keep them around, get them to come and volunteer, you know, volunteer some of their time, uh, get them off the streets. You know, if they're on the streets, they subject to get in trouble, but if they're around a senior center volunteering, mopping the floor, sweeping the floor, then they're less likely, likely to go to jail. Uh, I, I, I'm a firm believer in 
believe in, in people because there was a lot of people believed in me. This man here sitting next to me, he was, he was one of the first ones who believed in me a long time ago. And I haven't looked back since because I, I still remember some of the words he told me. But it was his, it was his genuine sincerity that, that touched me and, and it's keeping me in the same place. Mr. Jeff Adachi, he's, a, he's a, a, a big role model in my life today, like 14 years ago. Uh, Paul Stewart. Paul Stewart is one of, one of my mentees. Uh, from years ago, uh, he's he's here with me today. But you have to you have to have some kind of incentives for people that don't have nothing. That's coming from nothing, and it, it's hard to get them to stay if they if they don't have nothing. You know, you don't put nothing on the table. Like they're saying, there's there's no money for it. Okay, we've got to move on, but I'd like to have Ron Sanders um, have the last word. Yeah, I worked four years as a drug counselor at a Bayside Residential and outpatient with uh, deal with parolees. And uh, what I seen there was like a revolving door. I would see the same clients five, six times. And then it got to the point where I was like, then I started figuring it out that, hey, he's not ready to stop using, you know, and they just keep arresting him. But, he, but a, lot, a lot of things, what it had to do with is because – a lot of clients have mental problems to go with the drug problems, and they're not being addressed. And, and, and you're addressing the drug problem, but you're not addressing the mental problem, too. So, you know, it's a, and that's why they keep coming back and back and back, you know, until finally a client breaks down and says, this is what's been bothering me all these years, and I need to get this off my shoulder, you know. Thank you, Rudy Aguilar, Ronald Sanders, and Kenneth Rogers. Um, the last part of our panel discussion will be focused on an innovative reentry program uh, run by the Sheriff's Department that we've heard about called NOVA, which stands for No Violence Alliance. And we have three people on our panel who are with the NOVA program, Cedric Akbar, George Duran, and Abdul Aziz. Can one of you explain what NOVA is, what its mission is, and what NOVA has accomplished since it started a year ago? Okay. Anyway, uh, NOVA is, stands for the No Violence Alliance Project, and it's a collaboration of CBOs, that community CBOs in communities like Bayview Hunters Point, which are the targeted communities, Bayview Hunters Point, Fillmore, which is Western Edition, and uh, the Mission. And this is the first program that has targeted people that have been violent offenders. The only thing that you need to have to get into NOVA is that you want to be in NOVA and that you have violence on your record. And this was a very unique program. And I can say this to you, that I would not be connected to a program if it didn't work. Um, Positive Directions Equals Change is located in uh, Bayview Hunters Point at 3rd and Newcomb, in the heart of Bayview Hunters Point. And what allows NOVA to work is that we already know these people before they got arrested. So we already have that connection. And one of the main things that, and I, permission to speak, um, <laughs> one of the main things that I just, I, and I'm going to get back to NOVA for you, but that I always see that it's missing with people returning into the community is a disconnection. 
And when I was hearing those young people speaking, now they were speaking from their perspective, and then I'm dealing with the person that's coming home, which is their father. And it's a huge disconnection between those two. And how do we bring those two worlds together? And that's the thing about community involvement, which is so important. And we have to have you as the community to have an extended hand for that person when he comes back because he's been disconnected or she has been disconnected for a long time. So I just wanted to bring that point home. And it's not only being connected with, with the community itself, but it's being connected with the services in the community, being connected with employment in the community, all the businesses in the community, churches in the community, whatever it is that's in that community that can bring a tie. If there's no more than saying good morning to a person, that is a connection. And that's what we must have, and I say that's what's really lost with this. And that's what community-based programs bring. Okay, with the NOVA uh, project, uh, we have intensive case management on an individual. We connect with the person, be it in jails or prisons, or we connect with the person on the street. And their entry process into NOVA is either going through the Sheriff's Department or going through one of the CBOs. And once a person is engaged in NOVA, we see that person on a day-to-day -day basis. We are so involved in that person's life, I feel like sometimes that I am that person. But I always have to keep that, that little disconnection with the person. But we offer housing which is rare, and I mean they actually get housing. We offer employment, in which a lot of NOVA clients are actually working. And a lot of NOVA clients claim that they want a job, and that's all they need is a job, but they find out later that they don't have the skills to continue to work in employment. So we have to develop that with them. In NOVA, it's no way that you could ever get kicked out of NOVA. We know that you're going to have problems. You might even get rearrested. We know that you still may go out and do things that breaks the law. And it's not that we support breaking the law at all, but we still will support you, the individual, and put arms around you. We also support knowing who your family is and whatever that family may be. It could be, you know, the friends on the street, which we also allow in positive directions to allow that person to come to the program. And we support that person. And this is the first time, too, a program, and I'm so proud to say, that the money is attached to the individual. It is not attached to anyone's program. It goes to the actual individual. If he needs a driver's license, we get the driver's license. If he needs boots to start a union job or something like that, that is supplied for the individual. And at the same time, that person must attend some type of classes. And for the most of the clients, since they are violent offenders, we want them in an anger management class, domestic violence or something like that, because one thing I know for sure is a violent offender, I want them close to me. I don't want them away from me. I want to know where they are at all times. And then that's about building trust and having a relationship with the person. And that's another good thing about NOVA is that we are allowed to do that to build that trust with the individual. They have so much trust that they're even trusting the sheriff's department. And I've heard people say that I don't trust people in uniforms. But in, with the sheriff's department on this particular project, they are a part of this project, and it's truly supported. Um, so I, I'm stacking off my soapbox. So I'll let a person who is, who is in NOVA can tell you a little bit more about it than I can. Yeah, my name's Abdul Aziz. I, uh, December of 06, uh, upon completing uh, Walden House, 
I went to I, I didn't I I was a little shocked at first because you know I man I had my my little military retro money and 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 I done done good you know uh, for the most part yeah you know doing what I had to do at Walden House and what have you and uh, I was told uh, you know about this Nova program right and going over there and. My counselor at the time at Walden House, uh, Patricia Ayala, she took me in the van and we got there and, man, uh, beautiful room with the view of the water and all this, right? And I said, well, they really going to work with me on, because I, I, I really questioned it at first, because at first I'm thinking I'm moving in a place where I'm paying for my own stuff, but it's transitional housing, right? So I got in there and really tied in with uh, Craig and Cedric at Positive Directions, the crew at Positive Directions, Imam Abu Qadil Amin, you know, with the San Francisco Muslim Community Center. And I came to realize that, you know, I wasn't really ready for the other thing because that is just really being by, by myself like that coming from what I come from. Because, you know, I come, you know, being from St. Louis and coming from uh, cocaine Las Vegas, you know, uh, uh, tenderloins, uh, I wasn't ready for, uh, I re wasn't really ready for, and I had to, had to deal with that, right? And in dealing with that and going to the groups offered at Positive Direction, man, I really had to humble myself. And I'm just so glad I did. You know, this Nova thing is important. You know, see, they, they you know, they kill us on TV, y'all. You know, with this thing, it kills me, right? Uh, about this terrorist, this, this terror outside the United States coming into America. I'm going to tell you where your terrorist is. You hear me? Let tell you where your terrorist is. Your terrorist is that cat up in that San Francisco County Jail that want to get in these programs and can't get in them because the bed, ain't no bed space. You know, they, I mean, they really want to. So since there's nothing for him or her, it's easy. Hey, when you get out, hey, it's all still the same, G. Hey, let's go on and put it down, P. And that's what's happening, man. When you talking about the terrorists, man, y'all need to expand this Nova shit, man. Look, y'all, I mean, you feel me? You better hear me. You better expand this stuff because I'm telling you, that's where your next turn. You can worry about somebody outside. Right now, the next plot on this community is being planned and plotted right there in the San Francisco County Jail. And you were, and you were about some outside terrorists. Yeah. So Nova, you know, it's important, man, that y'all really work with that and do what you can to help, you know, uh, expand that. You know, people really trying to get out of there and do what they need to do with their life. It's, I'm, a, I'm, I'm here to tell you, there are people up in there that want this, but they can't, it's, it's, it's their time to get out, it's their turn. But ain't no space, ain't nothing available. So all they got 
is what they got to go back to. And now I'm going to do what he said, which on that note, I'm going to do what Cedric did and, and, and say permission to speak. <laughs> I love you, Felicia. It started right here. That, raise your hand, bro. Oh, from the, uh, Bruno. There you go. These people that in Bruno, see, see, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, it was a, and to see these people, man, after all this time, I gotta say it, cause it, it went from there to Gretchen, Gretchen, and her crew at Walden House. These folks saved my life, man. And in that, in that, I got put on a path to a crew called Positive Directions Equal Change. And she, that's what I'm saying. These cats that done been in the trenches that can talk to a joker like me that come from what I come from. Because I'm in this old no, this Nova, Nova violent stuff for real, for real. I mean, they got me in here because I belong up in there. You feel me? <laughs> they, that's what, they, that's, you feel me? And so these are the people that, that have been able to, you know, and see, they, they don't hit you that with no fit. No, they, they hit this here. <clears throat> and then they talk, and they reach you in here, you know, and that has made me want to change my life. I, my my whole thing is so much better today because of this Nova program. And I say, extend it, do whatever you can. You hear me? You do whatever you can to extend that job. You better hear me. That's that's really really. I mean, I, I thank everybody with Nova and for what y'all have done. Everybody at Positive Directions, you know, and every everybody that Allah has used to put me on this path to doing the right next thing, and then okay. after that, the next right thing. All George Duran, you're with the San Francisco Sheriff's Department. Do you have anything to add about the NOAA program? That's a hard act to follow. <laughs> but if you notice this whole panel, there were some threads, there were some themes. You can't not put money into the jails and prisons to start treatment there. And you cannot leave the money out and the support once they get out. And you cannot leave the community out of the process. And you can't leave those who have survived the, the, the perils of crime, those who have been inflicted by violence. I'll give you a story. I have a mentor. I, mentor, I met him in the county jail in, 19, in 1987. And I never heard a young man ever tell me this. He said, gee, I don't want no babies. I don't want to bring them into this world. That was then. In 97, I met him again. In 2000, I met him. And he still was functioning. He worked for Muni. He stayed out of trouble. Then he got back in trouble when Muni let him go. I feared for this young man's life because he was telling me that he had some fault with some people. Right when Nova started. So I talked to the program people at NOVA, and I said, he needs to get in NOVA. He needs to get the heck out of San Francisco. See, a lot of people are getting out of jail, going back to a place where there's some funk. Some people need to get out of the city. We need to have relationships with other cities and move people around, because you can't kill nobody you can't find. So one day I was talking to my coworker, and I get a call at 7.30 in the morning. He said, I'm... I just got shot in the head. 
I'm talking to him on the cell phone. I just had a conversation with my coworkers about this individual. He got shot in the head. He went to the hospital. He's not working. He's got the prettiest little baby. So he's selling drugs. He gets in the hospital. They, take, they can't take the bullet out, but they take dope out of his you-know-what. They came to him, and they said, who shot you? He wouldn't tell. They arrested him. When he gets to jail, guess who's in jail with him? The shooter. So thank God today that through the process of NOVA and people being available, he is safe today. He's back on track. And the other part of it is, is mentorship, men and women. Men and women. For the last six years, men have been going into that jail from the community because there's got to be a connection, as Cedric talked about. Because the disconnect, people in jail, everybody I spoke to, gee, I want to give back. But if you want to give back and you don't have the form to give back, what are you going to give back? And eventually you're going to get discouraged and say, all that wasn't worth it. So NOVA to me is a, is a blessing because never before have violent offenders got anything. That's right. So now they have an opportunity, those that want to, those that volunteer can do it. And that intensive case management, it works. I, have, I know about 20 clients in NOVA that now they hang out down at 850 Bryant. I ain't never seen no mess like that. They down there every day congregating because you know why? Today they feel safe. Today they feel cared about. And today, today they feel that they're part of something. When you feel part of something, then, then your self-esteem and, and the way you perceive yourself changes. So I agree with this young man. We need to extend it inside and out. And from that perspective, the question I want to leave with you out here is what can you bring to the table? I challenge the churches. I challenge the community. They need to start coming to the table because if we're going to turn it around, it's not going to be just law enforcement. It's not going to be these CBOs. It's going to be a collective of all San Francisco citizens, businesses, to come to the table to say, hey, here's a helping hand. We have run out of time for this panel discussion. I'd like to thank all of our panelists who were part of uh, this afternoon's session. Rudy Aguilar with the Parolee Services Network with the Department of Public Health. Kenneth Rogers, Senior Ex-Offender Program. Ronald Sanders with the Transitions Clinic. Kyle Sporleader and Therese Rodriguez with Project What? Cedric Akbar with uh, Positive Directions Equals Change, No Violence Alliance. George Duran, No Violence Alliance, San Francisco Sheriff's Department. Abdul Aziz with uh, No Violence Alliance. And Corinne Pope, former parent client with Children of Incarcerated Parents, Office of the Public Defender. Can we have a round of applause for all our panelists? And we have a, uh, another panel discussion coming up in just a few minutes, Inside and Out, Increasing Access to Appropriate Services and Resources. I hope you can stay with us.